Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome to Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. And I want to remind you to check out radio.acton.org, our podcast archives. You can find them all archived there for your convenience. And if you did not listen to the prior edition of Radio Free Acton, you're going to want to go back and do that now because today we are happy to present part two of a two-part podcast series featuring our very own Michael Matheson Miller, research fellow here at the Acton Institute, director of Poverty Cure, and a man with a longtime interest in the thought and writings of Edmund Burke. Last week, he began an interview with David Bromwich. He is the Sterling Professor of English at Yale University. Most recently, he is the author of a first volume. I should say that's the first volume of a what will eventually be a two-volume set of books on the intellectual life of Edmund Burke. That is, in fact, the title of the first volume, The Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke. You can find it at Amazon.com and other reputable booksellers online and in the world of brick and mortar, I am sure. But uh, last week we broke off the interview about halfway through, and uh, we broke it off at a point where Michael was asking uh, Professor Bromwich a question about Edmund Burke and the issue of crony capitalism and free markets. And so without further ado, let's get right back into our discussion with David Bromwich on the intellectual life of Edmund Burke. Sometimes... Um I find conservative readers of Burke are surprised and even maybe bothered by the fact that Burke was quite a supporter of free market, free trade, especially free his trade. Thoughts, yep. on his thoughts on scarcity. But what what a lot of people think about as free market, free trade is really crony capitalism. And Burke was, yep. I think, I think you you could develop this for me. He seemed quite uh, critical of this kind of state managerial crony capitalism that, in fact, you see people on the right and the left uh, supporting yeah. in different forms. Burke's attitude towards power gained through money is very complicated <laughs> because if it is old money from old estates, um, uh, such as the estates uh, in Yorkshire of his uh, uh, patron, Lord Rockingham, um, then Burke's attitude uh, towards it was uh, uh, not, you know, not just patient, but sympathetic. Um, you know, uh, be to their faults a little kind. Um, but uh, is that why uh, Marx it, called it, him a sycophant? Well, Bur yeah, Burke certainly is no sort of critic of, um, you know, power gained through money. As such, Marx's comments on Burke, um, I'm guessing, come only from a reading of Burke on the French Revolution. And of course, for Marx, the French Revolution is the beginning of modern class consciousness that can lead to the society of total equality, the, the communist society. And Burke's you know, whole length opposition to the French Revolution would, would be enough to condemn him in Marx's eyes. But I don't know that he had a a very shaded uh, or subtle understanding of the range of Burke's writings. Um, but uh, uh, 
But back to the money. money. You were saying about new money versus old money. Yeah, if it's new money that comes from, you know, an industry that exploits people uh, in drastic ways that produce great misery, Uh, if it is uh, sudden fortunes, to use a phrase from Adam Smith uh, that Burke has synonyms for, sudden fortunes that come from uh, the exploitation of rents uh, and the sort of extractionist economy that the British Empire practiced against India, the British Empire with its instrument, the East India Company, uh, then Burke is a, a stern critic of it. And why? Not just because it's a form of oppression, not because it leads to more misery uh, for people whose uh, skin has a different color from ours, though that is a reason, but also because it, it uh, promotes a huge uh, inequalities of power uh, and imbalances of power in the Constitution of England. Um, these people making East India fortunes become members of Parliament. They become a whole separate faction. And what do they do? They work for their own interests. And what are their interests? They're the interests of a commercial empire, not of a a political nation. Right. Um, You know, I have one other line of question I'd like to go into. But before that, I think one of the things that's interesting to me, and perhaps you comment on it, and I'm I'm bringing this back to, say, modern uh, contemporary American life, is I'm, I'm seeing a growing worry about managerial crony capitalism on the left who in some ways are always kind of wary of capitalism but not wary of the government and, and on the right and, and on the right people of yeah go ahead oh sorry and just and on the right people who tend to be like, sometimes say if somebody critiques business there's almost a reaction like well no business is good i think they're starting to think like well you know Business is good when it's not in cahoots with the government to exploit yeah. people and become uh, an interest group. And I think yeah. it's an interesting kind of connection between the right and the left allying over these things that are is maybe – and I don't I, – I don't, this probably you know, won't last during the voting periods. But outside of the, the election years, uh, it's starting to bring together maybe new coalitions of ways of thinking. And Burke seems to have something to say to both of these groups. I think you're right, and I hope it's true that uh, these affinities are are glimpsed uh, and um, you know uh, <laughs> sealed in a more solid way uh, in the future. It's hard to know. Um, look, the American left historically uh, has had uh, uh, a conscientious hostility towards inequalities of power that come from money. Um, because the left, since Marx and before Marx, has recognized that uh, money uh, in great enough quantities and uh, accumulations l- leads directly to power. Money is not, uh, I mean, big money is not automatically the friend of democracy, quite the reverse. Anything too big is the enemy of democracy. Uh, whereas the right has been, uh, you know, you could say in a parallel way, um, conscientious in its hostility toward unchecked power in the form of government um, and the uniformity it leads to, uniformity that often works against most people's interests uh, and the uh, uh, sheer uh, 
uh, sort of flatness and dreariness of unthinking conformity that by this means government is allowed to encourage. What do these two forms of um, wariness have in common, and what's the Burkean clue to them? I would say unchecked power. Um, but, you know, the, the error of the right, uh, to, you know, to put it <laughs> briefly, uh, is to uh, deny that uh, money can be a form of power, uh, as if money is just a part of nature, like trees that grow up, and it, it no more interferes in society than trees do. Um, and on the left is to suppose that government, uh, uh, you know, itself uh, has no dangers for us. Um, right. Once and, it's public, uh, it's therefore altruistic, kind of. Yeah, if it's public and if they're regular votes and they're fair votes, um, eventually they're going to lead to the interests of uh, the majority or of almost all people uh, being uh, defended. But here, Burke is just a solid libertarian. He's he you know he says in the reflections on the revolution in France. Um, uh, that the standard of right and wrong is not identical with the judgment of the people any more than it's identical with the judgment of kings. The people can go against what's right. The mass of the people can be wrong, and the king can be wrong. And that's why you need laws that check the power of both. Right. Um, again, this may be for follow-up. I'd like to talk somehow about the source of those the laws and the natural law and Burke. But let, let's go maybe on this line one more one more thing, is that this wariness of concentrated power, he also has a wariness of economists and sophists and calculators, right? And it seems that that's maybe another area where both the right and the left need to listen to Burke, in that there's this you know, love of technology that Neil Postman called a technopoly, Right, that we have yeah. all of these technological things that once somehow we use social science or technology, that therefore it's legit, it's legitimate, and now we need to to follow along. And there's a almost an idolatry of progress that's yeah. connected into technology yeah. to data. And this seems to be something that Burke is saying. Wait a minute, this is not all good. It can actually yeah. lead to power and uniformity and then ab abuse. Yeah. Do you think that's yeah. correct? Yes, I do. Uh, you know, in matters of culture, manners, uh, the everyday small change of moral conduct, but it counts every day. Um, Burke is skeptical about modernization, about making things new and streamlined and easier for us too quickly, uh, about counting everything um, a blessing just because it is a convenience. Um, but there, you know, uh, the way to use Burke or, or Ruskin or Acton or any of those older uh, thinkers who are conservationist as well as conservative um, really directs us against the whole drift of modern society. It's not, you know, it's not liberals who are guilty here or, you know, uh, statist conservatives. It, it is uh, something in human nature itself. I'm afraid, uh, and I, I feel I have been instructed by Burke in this, it's something in human nature itself that we have to be extremely wary of, of conducting experiments on ourselves to change the kind of creature we are uh, into something more uniform, um, less interesting and imaginative, but, you know, comfortable in the world we live in. I mean, and there the 
almost didactic uh, conservationism about uh, moral life that Burke teaches is, you know, it's in an aphorism of his that I like very much, and I turn around in my mind sometimes. He says in the Reflections on the Revolution in France, I do not like to see anything destroyed, any void produced in society, any ruin on the face of the land. And if you think of you know, the different parts of that metaphor, don't, don't tear apart, don't change real fast. Any part of social conduct that has seemed to be some good for some time without thinking very hard about it. Uh, don't destroy the land either. Um, in fact, take care uh, how your magnificent gestures of total reform uh, are changing everything because you're the product of the things you know, and once the things you know are gone from you, you don't know yourself anymore. Um, and I suppose that aspect of self-knowledge that grows out of social knowledge is one of the most pronounced features of Burke's originality. I mean, I really, on that point, I don't know anything to match him. You know, I think two two things. Sometimes when I explain Burke, I, I say one of the ways uh, you could think about Burke is is uh, in a very colloquial manner. He said, "You can't just do stuff just because, like, mm-hmm. oh, there's a problem, I'm going to solve it." You know that that there's a whole host of of um, relationships that are not immediately discernible to the eye and that we can't take a hollowed out version of reality that's missing all of these, what, um, you know, he talks about recovery of prejudice or what Polanyi calls uh, inarticulate rational, like tacit knowledge. Um, It seems that that, that's something that uh, is in many ways a challenge, especially to Americans Right. Americans, we like, we like to solve problems, right? Okay, here's a problem. I'm going to solve it. We're going to fix that's it. Right. That's right. I think we're the most progress-loving, the most unthinkingly progress-loving nation that ever was. Yeah. And, and this where I think this is on the right and the left. I mean, you see like, you know, and you talk about um, some of the reactions after after um, the, the terrorist attacks of 2001. This desire to, we are going to solve this problem. And in many ways, this goes back to something you said a moment ago, that we're trying to solve human nature itself. And that's not solvable. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a, a functionary undersecretary of, oh God, was it state or defense uh, under Bush and Cheney named Armitage, uh, who called up the intelligence minister of Pakistan the day after September 11th and said, um, the world has changed starting now. Now, that's a Jacobin sentiment, as you know. <laughs> the Jacobins redated their calendar to start at the year zero. And I was very apprehensive when I heard so many Americans redating our calendar at the year zero um, because this horrible uh, terror attack had occurred on American soil. Um, but terrorism had occurred elsewhere. Americans had been the victims of it before. And the reaction uh, was so... Uh, far from anything you could see immediately warranted uh, by the catastrophe, that it, again, it could give one a Burkean thought that, uh, uh, you know, the actors in this scene may be not those who are most moving on the stage, but some who are behind the scenes and some motives that are behind the scenes. And I think many of us have felt that without having any answer, particularly in the years since, as government becomes less checked uh, under Bush and Obama, 
and uh, and the actions of our government uh, less easy for us to explain to ourselves. Right. So what what would you say as you as this first volume comes out, um, you know, and the second volume, what are some of your your hopes in 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 the political landscape? I mean, I know that you're dealing with a lot of competing. My uh, hopes for my hopes yeah. for seventeen ninety, or my hopes for two thousand and fifteen. <laughs> maybe your hopes for both, but maybe you know, you're competing with a lot of uh, of information. I mean, it's hard to beat some, uh, you know, music video uh, to read instead. Well, I, turn I, that down. I can't. I but, can't beat it, and I can't try. Right. So. But what are your hopes that that could come perhaps from people reading this book and and getting to know Burke, and especially in relation to some of the things we've talked about in in maybe rethinking some of uh, our our um, love of progress. I don't want to say progressivist because it's not about right yeah. or left. It's about this kind of right left American sense that well, where as as to technology and the juggernaut of technology, which you brought up a few moments ago, I would say uh, Burke is is a a, a great uh, standing uh, <laughs> caution against that, uh, against lunging forward into that, and a prompter of thought. Um, but we we talked about that um, politically. Uh, I suppose Burke could uh, uh, encourage one to think about what uh, uh, you know, uh, an empire governed by magnanimous magnanimous spirits would be like. And we have, in effect, a kind of empire by the sheer extent of our commercial and potentially military power in the world and the uh, idealism that is still possible about American manners and American society at its best. Um, But we haven't been standing for it at its best in the world for some time now. Uh, The main way we seem to back it is by force or by manipulation of other powers. And so, you know, Burke coming up to the French Revolution and thinking about England in contrast with France, which wants to take over Europe once Napoleon comes into power, you know, he might prompt us to think also about, uh, uh, you know, a vision of coexistence in the world of nations as a greatly important and much admired nation. Um, but that wants to be uh, powerful through exemplary conduct and not through domination. I think Burke is, um, under his many other virtues and <laughs> you know, indications for thought, um, he, is a, he is a great um, enemy of domination. Um, and I think, uh, you know, small, medium, and large-sized powers in the world are still intent on that now, uh, with every bit as much ferocity, those slightly different means than were shown uh, in the days of the great powers uh, after the Congress of Vienna. And uh, you know, Burke really uh, does not think that's the form of human society that we should uh, promote. So, you know, there'll be more about that <laughs> when I write about uh, his prosecution of abuses of the Indian people by the East India Company and and the abuse of liberty uh, by the French Revolution. Um, but that, in, in some ways, a more dramatic, uh, but at the same time, more divided subject matter than I had in the first volume. And that comes out in your second volume. Yep. Okay. So one last question for you, and then I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time. And, and uh, mm-hmm. It's been good talking to you. Um, one last question. It's, a big, it's kind of a big one, but related to – you talked about what Burke would inspire uh, thinking in the international stage. 
Um, you mentioned his use of the term, <clears throat> pardon me, you mentioned the use of his term little platoons, and you, you say that more ref- refers to his political party. But um, you also talk about how Tocqueville and others were influenced by Burke. And one of the things that the French sociologist Jacques Ellul wrote in a book, Propaganda, kind of a, this section that's very Tocquevillian, he, he talks about how people in the modern society get propagandized by, by the state. And, and here you go back to this kind of economist, calculator, sophist idea of Burke. And he says that the, this is very Tocquevillian insight, that the two th- things that allow propaganda to happen are individualism and mass society. And okay. that people like Robert Nisbet and others say, well, one of the things we need to do is, is get away from mass society and have smaller local relationships. And yeah. a lot of people invoke the idea of little platoons for that. Yeah. Do, you, do, what do, you, do you see – I mean we're in a very highly centralized state with lots of yeah. rules and regulations. What do you yeah. see there domestically? Uh, so let me first make a contrast with Burke, because I'm sympathetic to your drift, if I catch it right. Um, but I, I don't think it's necessarily Burkean. And here, really, we have a different time uh, to deal with than he did. Um, Burke was, uh, in a large degree, uh, though this uh, comes as a shock to many Burkeans, a cosmopolitan. Uh, he thought that the world was uh, the, 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 the great cultures of the world, France for the arts and polish, England for industry and common sense, etc., etc., that they were coming together. Trade was one of the means they were coming together. Learning was another one of the means. And that the enlargement of society in this sense could lead to a form of worldliness so good that it would bring, you know, in some distant future, he didn't even want to speculate about, um, you know, an end to the sort of frictions that the 17th century had seen. Um, I don't think that uh, the people talking about uh, small uh, uh, sort of um, uh, subdivisions, little platoons in society today, neighborhoods or local governments are Burkean when they do that. When Burke spoke of the little platoon, my feeling from reading that in context and thinking about it a lot is that he didn't mean neighborhoods or neighborhood watch or anything like that. He probably meant um, uh, <laughs> uh, half Catholic, half Protestant emigres from Ireland who have joined the professional classes in England and now still keep contact with each other. That's his little platoon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so civil, a civil society on maybe a higher level and then political yeah, yeah, identification, could, you could, you not could simply elevate. neighborhood watches. I, yeah, sure. The, yeah. I know I was, I was being satirical. Yeah. I mean, you, <laughs> could, you could raise, you could exalt that into something called civil society. But I think the, the most, one of the more hopeful tendencies perhaps binding together libertarian elements on right and left in the United States now, is to work at the business of uh, town, city, state government, um, where especially at the level of town and city, um, people uh, committed to the ordinary life of citizenship can have some effect. And from there on up, we may be able to affect the behavior of this nation. Um, and perhaps eventually others too. But that kind of local commitment, um, I think of as belonging more to the literature of uh, uh, 
you know, American democracy in an earlier phase than it does to Burke. It belongs to, you know, the ideas of the town meeting that you get somewhat idealized, but pictured very interestingly in, in The Rights of Man by Tom Paine and, and, and in other works. And, you know, uh, I just Tocqueville in this argument is not quite on either side, because as you say, civil society is his uh, central term, and that refers to mediating bodies that are neither quite political nor merely local. Um, you know, there's a large literature on that in, in modern American political science, and a lot of the work of the American empire that's not done with guns is being, you know, exported by young workers in NGOs um, busy with what they call democracy promotion and civil society. And I have an ironic view of that. I think some of it is good, and some of it is a matter of sheer projected national self-interest by the United States, not far enough from our relations of military force to make me comfortable. But um, yeah. who I mean, knows and what will come a, of that? Yeah, and that, I mean, that's a whole other topic, because I think, too, one of the it things is. you see, too, with NGOs that I'm critical of is that oftentimes, you know, we call them non-governmental organizations, but in many ways they are parastate organizations. They are arms of the state promoting yep. certain ideas. You know, I did interviews with people in, in, in Africa, and one man said, you have the you know, World Bank and the IMF p- pushing one thing from the top, and then you have the NGOs that are funded by the World Bank yep. and the IMF pushing the thing from the quote-unquote grassroots, and it's astroturf. It's not grassroots. Yeah, so, well, they, they have become, to this extent, for the United States, what Burke suspected, wrongly suspected, but still his suspicion is always interesting, what he suspected the uh, revolution societies were in England, that is to say, mere projections of French power-mongering. But of course, a decade later, Burke was right. A decade later, that's what those revolution societies in various European countries would be. And, you know, maybe I should close with just Fox's wonderful encomium to Burke, because he opposed Burke's uh, hostility to the French Revolution. Fox more or less embraced the French Revolution. He was confronted years later uh, with uh, how much of Burke's anticipation had proved true. And Fox said, yes, Burke is right. Burke is always right. The problem is he is right too soon. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Professor David Bromwich, the Sterling Professor of English at Yale. Your new book, The Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke, Volume 1. Thanks so much for your time and for joining us today. Very good talking to you. And with that, we come to the conclusion of yet another edition of Radio Free Acton. want to offer some thanks before we wrap it up for today. First of all, to Michael Matheson Miller, a research fellow here at the Acton Institute, director of Poverty Cure. So good to have you in the Acton studios today, Michael, and thanks for conducting a fine interview. Also, thanks to Dr. David Bromwich, the Sterling Professor of English at Yale University. Uh, who has written, uh, as we mentioned before, a fine book, the first volume of what will eventually be two volumes on David Burke's life and work. The book is entitled The Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke, and you can pick that up at Amazon or other online retailers. And I want to thank you as well for joining us today here on Radio Free Acton. It wouldn't be much of a podcast if we didn't have folks listening to it, so you mean a lot to us. Thank you so much for joining us today here on the podcast. Until next time, my name is Mark Vandermoss. I wish you well and uh, hope you'll be back with us for another edition of Radio Free Actin'.